there is a new attack. There's a new way of looking at the Bible. Someone once said to me, you know, the Bible is not relevant anymore, right? It's an ancient document. It's full of errors. It was mistranslated. The translation that we're reading is not in the original translation. You've heard that. Of course you've heard that. It's everywhere. And at some point in time, we start going, yeah, maybe that's true. Maybe the Bible is mistranslated. Maybe it is full of errors. Maybe it is what the Catholic Church created in the Middle Ages for domination of, of, of humanity. And you hear that, and you hear that, and you hear that. And what takes place is, is the Word of God, be, at one point in time, may have been very important to you, but then becomes, uh, it's, it's almost like a relative scale now. And it begins to dip and begins to dive. And, and he's like, wow, maybe the Bible's not that important. Maybe I don't need to read the Bible every day. Maybe I know the Bible. Uh, there's a guy named uh, George Barna. He wrote a book called The Second Coming of the Church. And in the book he said, the first greatest people group have to evangelize in North America are the unchurched. The second greatest people group that we have to evangelize in North America is the overchurched. People who are tired of church. People who are tired of the Bible. People who think they know God's word. And when we say we know God's word, we say to ourselves, obviously we're thinking about the Bible, but we need to understand something, that however you view the Bible, you will view God. And like I said to you before, sometimes I feel like people need to use, rather than using a highlighter in their Bible, they need to use a black marker. I'm uncomfortable with this. I'm uncomfortable with that. Um, yesterday, the guys were out at, uh, in Toronto, and we were um, at an outdoor show and had some great conversations. If you missed it, guys, we're going to have some other things, um, some wing nights and some other stuff, and it's going to be a great time. Uh, we had a lot of Indian food, and it's a delight to me to watch white people try to eat Indian food because the fla- <laughs> what, they, were, they were trying to eat uh, um, uh, an Indian dessert, which, by the way, Indian desserts are terrible, uh, just to let you know. But uh, the guy's trying to describe the taste of it. He's like, it tastes like a beaver tail with oranges. I'm like, that's, I guess that's as close as you can get, right? But one of the things, on the way back home, uh, Derek Smith and I were driving. And whenever Derek and I get in confined spaces for too long, we have very deep and profound conversations. Uh, you know, punctuate with inappropriate humor as well, too. But Derek and I were talking, and, we're, and, and Derek said to me, you know, there's, there's part of the Bible that I, I'm not sure I understand. And I said to him, you know, this part of the Bible, I'm not sure I understand either. We don't have to have full knowledge of God to have trust in God. Your 10% of doubt, your 30% of doubt, whatever, whatever percentage point you want, does not overcome who and what God is. There are things in God's word that you look at and you read and you're like, I don't know. I don't get it. That's okay. What you are acknowledging is you don't quite understand who and what God is. But as a finite human being, there's no way you'll wrap your mind around who and what God is. Your relationship to God's word will, will dictate your relationship with God. So we talk about the sword. And of course, the thing we have to understand is that the great misunderstanding about this verse is the ownership of the sword. Look, look what Paul says. The sword of the spirit. See, we all want... By the way, when you, you got you to gotta feel how heavy this thing is. Maybe afterwards we'll swing at some stuff and we'll, we'll, we'll uh, bring some watermelons in and go at it, right? But... When we think of the sword, we think to ourselves, oh, I get a sword. The problem is, you don't. It's not your sword. It's of the Spirit. 
And that was the first misunderstanding about this verse. Because, of course, we, you know, um, especially guys, we were at the outdoor show and, and all the guys were looking at knives. And there's some really big knives in, out there, right? And, uh, um, you know, you look at these, these knives and like, oh, this is my knife. This is my weapon. And, and, and that can be the way we, we think about it when we look at hunting and all that kind of stuff. But when we talk of the sword of the Spirit, Paul, we, we forget this word of. It's the sword of the Spirit. It's not the sword of you or me. It's the sword of the Spirit. So what we need to understand about this is that the sword is the Spirit, is the Spirit, and is the Spirit. Now, this is going to be kind of complex here, but let me walk you through it, okay? The sword is not yours. It's not for you to wheel at and hack at whatever you want. That would be great if that was the case, but it's not. The sword is the Spirit, and it is the Spirit, which means... What we have to understand about this is this piece of equipment is on loan. It's on loan. It's not yours. It's not for you to do whatever you want with. It's not for you to attack whoever you think you should attack. I saw this great quote, um, you know, when we think that when people who make God angry. No. Let me start again. If you think the people that God's angry with are the same people you think God's angry with, then you've, what you've done is you've created God in your own image. In other words, this idea of that. We have this, 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 this part of us that thinks, oh, it must be this way. I understand completely who God is and his revelation. And therefore, if anybody is different from me, they're against God. And it's like, mm, not so much. Not as much as you may think it is, right? And so this piece of equipment is on loan. And not only is it on loan, but the skills to wield it are the spirits as well too. When I was in high school, I took fencing. And uh, in fencing, uh, there's, three, uh, there's three swords you can use. There's epee, uh, foil, and saber. And I used epee. Epee was the one that's the easiest because it's got a big piece of rubber at the end. So it doesn't make sure you don't kill anybody. But I, I, one of the things that was interesting to me is that you learn the forms in, in fencing. You learn how to hold the sword. You, under, you understood the stances. And again, the stances are very counterintuitive. But they teach you how to use a sword. And I remember my first match. And of course, you have the mask on and you have the white jacket. And you're sitting there, and the other person across me, they're brand new at this as well, too. And I think we only had um, a few weeks of, of kind of learning the grip and, the, and, and, and all that. But I remember sitting there, and they finally put the sword in my hand, and there's my opponent. And all I wanted to do was kind of use it like an axe and start hacking at them, right? And the, but I was kind of nervous, and they were kind of nervous, right? And they're like, kind of, so we kind of looked at each other, and we're like, okay, I'm going to come forward. I'm going I'm to try to poke you there, and how's that going to work? And they, it was this idea that, you know... I, I didn't really understand how to use it. Like when you see, you know, like when you see fencing at Olympic level, like it's so fast and the points like you'll, basically it's a touch and you can't even see it sometimes, right? It's, it's incredibly fast, quite complex. And the idea the skills needed to do that well are, are, are not as simple as we think it is. And ultimately when we talk about the sword of the spirit, you don't have the skills to wield the sword of the spirit, the sword of the spirit in your own hands can actually be a destructive force. See, when we talk about the word of God, what we need to understand is we can't use this as a hammer to batter people. How many times have you opened the Bible looking for God to speak to you and you got nothing? Lord, I need you to speak to me. Okay, so I'm at Judah's terrible drought here in Jeremiah chapter 14. This message came to Jeremiah from the Lord explaining why, there was, why he was holding back the rain. Ooh, that really spoke to me right there. I, I'm, I'm going to walk away refreshed, right? No, that, that's, that's what we think the Word of God is, right? We think to ourselves, if I just crack it open one time and, and read it, oh, this revelation's going to hit me and the world's going to open up and, and light. That doesn't work that way. And I think somehow we 
been taught that, and therefore our disappointment with God's word has kind of grown. What do you mean I just can't crack it open and understand it? What do you mean, like, all these different people's names and all that? Wow, how, doesn't God want to speak to me in serious word? He does, but not in the way you understand it. So the first part of, this, uh, of the passage is the sword. But the secondary part of it, and this is where it gets really interesting, is the word of God. So again, if I said to you, and I kind of point out, if I said to you, what's the word of God? You would say, it's the Bible. But what if I told you that that's not the word Paul uses in this passage? He's actually not talking about the Bible here. See, when I read this passage in the past, what I thought to myself was, of course it's the word of God. Of course it's the Bible. But see, the Bible as, as, as taught as a written piece of scripture is the word, the Greek word they use for it is logos, right? If you know John chapter one, verse one, in the beginning was the word. In the beginning was the logos. That's Jesus, right? And so what, what Paul's talking about here is that that the, the word of God is not just simply logos, because he doesn't use logos here. He uses another word, and the word is rhema. And rhema is a very interesting word. Now, charismatics have run crazy with this word a little bit, and in my research, I, I came across a whole bunch of misinterpretations. I don't want to elevate this word too much, but I want to use this word in the context that it's used in Greek literature and in, 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 in context of the New Testament scriptures. Rhema is actually a very interesting word. It's not just a written word. It's a dialogue. So what's interesting is Paul has a choice of using two different words here for scripture. He could use the logos, but instead he uses rhema. Now let me show you some examples of the usage of logos, kind of give you a sense of what Paul is trying to differentiate. In John chapter 5 verse 39 it says this, you study the scriptures, the logos, diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. These are the very scriptures, logos, that testify about me. So what's interesting is Jesus is having a conversation. He says, listen, you go to the Bible, you go to the logos, and you think you're going to find fresh revelation. And wouldn't that be great? Every time you cracked open God's word, you'd be like, wow, it's like, you know, a hand comes out and slaps you. It's like a pop-up book, and there's the Holy Spirit slapping you across the face. That would be great. But unfortunately, if we were all honest with ourselves, most times when we read the Bible, there's a bit of a disappointment. You're like, I don't know if I understand that, or I've read that so many times, I don't know if it really means anything to me, Right? So when Paul says the sword is, is the word of God, he's not talking about the logos. Now, let me contrast rhema and logos in one passage. In John chapter 6, this is a great moment in time. You have to remember, Jesus didn't have 12 disciples. He had 72 disciples. Okay? We forget that. And in one moment in time, Jesus takes his fledgling movement of 72 people to 12. And in church planning movement, we'd call that a failure. If at one moment, at one sermon, you take your, your group from 72 people to 12, we would all call that probably not a really great idea, Jesus, right? But in John chapter 6, that's exactly what happens. Jesus has his 72 disciples, and he lays it down for them. It's a test, really. What we don't realize about Jesus' is teaching is a test. And so he says to his disciples, his 72 disciples, By the way, you need to eat my flesh and drink my blood. And of course, Hebrews, cannibalism is, is absolutely uh, against the Levitical law that they've been taught. Right? And so, and, and they're like, what? Just like, yes, that's what you have to do. You have to understand what that means. And they're like, and of course, they turn to each other and like, this is really hard teaching. On hearing of it, many disciples said, this is hard teaching. The logos teaching, right? Who can accept it? Jesus has just laid down for them 
something so deep and so profound. And instead, they kind of going, they, they say to themselves, I don't know if I, Jesus, I was following you because I thought you were this Messiah, this rabbi, this person that was going to lead me into the kingdom of heaven. But now you're telling me that I have to physically eat your, your flesh and drink your blood? Ew. I don't think so. And on that moment and not on that day, 60 of them said, I, 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 can't, I can't do this anymore. And they leave. And it's interesting. The Bible has an interesting phrase. Jesus actually turns it back. Jesus says that and turns his back. He's like, okay, guys, have a conversation with yourselves now. How much do you really want to follow me? How much do you really trust me? It's interesting. It's kind of a test that we all feel every day, doesn't it? When things don't go our way, when things kind of go awry, when things kind of plummet in different directions, God says to us, how much do you really trust me? And sometimes we find to ourselves that we don't trust God as much as we think we do. And I want to confess to you this last several weeks, as I've been walking through this passage of scripture, as I've been studying it deeper, the Lord has exposed my heart. And I didn't realize how much unbelief and mistrust and doubt existed there. And, and, and God has really exposed it. And we've been, I've been praying into it. And just, but I was saying to the group this morning as we had our prayer time, this three days ago, I had this moment and I, and I thought, I realized something. All I have is Jesus. I don't have a safety net. I don't have anything else. I don't have, uh, all I have is Jesus in my life. That's it. And when I said that, I, I, it was first moment, it was like, oh, I don't, I don't have much more than that. But then all of a sudden I realized something. Oh, that's all I need is Jesus. Because ultimately, if that's all I have, then my faith is in him. Not upon my own abilities, not upon my own wisdom, not upon any of these type of things, but it's all I have. All I have is Jesus. That's all, that, that's it. But when we realize that's all we have, not our health, not our finances, not our relationships, not any other things that we think that we can depend upon, not even our friends, when all we have is Jesus, we are in this most interesting place uh, of trusting him in a way we've never had. I, I realize I, all I had is Jesus. These 72 disciples, Jesus just laid down to them a teaching. Now, remember, whenever Jesus teaches something, the disciples will come to him and say, Jesus, that was great, but what are you really trying to say? Right? What's really going on here? Now, look at this. Jesus turns around in verses 68 and 69 says this. Simon Peter, so Jesus says, don't you guys want to go too? Only the 12 are left. Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words, the rhema of eternal life. We have come to believe and to know that you are the Holy One of God. So what John does here is he contrasts the logos to the rhema. The logos is this teaching that's hard and and it's brutal and it's crushing them. But Peter says something. And again, Peter has so many strikeouts at at, at the plate. Like you just go, oh, Peter, right? But sometimes Peter has these moments of, 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 of just absolute truth. And he's like, you have the rhema. You have the words of life. We don't always understand your behavior, Jesus. We don't always understand your teaching. And quite frankly, Jesus, you're a little bizarre sometimes. But we know that you are the Holy One of God. And our trust is going to supersede our doubt and our misunderstanding of who you are. Now, now let's put this in context here, okay? Paul uses the word rhema for a reason. Because what Paul is trying to say is that you don't, you don't know this well enough to fight the enemy. 
When the doubts and the attacks come to you, you're like, uh, uh, oh, okay, I need a scripture on fear, uh, on doubt. Uh, I, I, and, and, and you're going to your concordance, you're looking at all these, you know, we don't know this word as, as well as we think we do. And what Paul is trying to say here, the sword of the spirit is not based upon your understanding of God's word. If your battle with the enemy was based upon your knowledge of God's word, you fail every time. Because I'll tell you this right now, the devil knows the Bible way better than you. He's had thousands upon thousands of years to study it. He knows how to twist it. He knows how to omit passages. He knows how to make things to you confusing. He knows that. So what Paul is trying to say is the sword of the spirit is not based upon your understanding of God's word. How many times have you said to yourself, I don't know God's word well enough. I don't know the Bible well enough. Therefore, I can't serve. I can't lead. I can't evangelize. I can't say to somebody, hey, I love Jesus. I can't answer all these questions out there. Every time I turn around, the internet has a new reason why I should doubt the Bible. I don't know the Bible enough. Therefore, I can't share my faith. I, I, I can't tell people my faith because I don't know the Bible well enough. And that's a lie that we kept getting. We, it's, it's, it's a lie that keeps getting fed to us. And we're like, yeah. I don't know the Bible well enough. Why do you think my, my inbox and my emails, pastor, this person said this, pastor, this person said that. You know, it's like, okay, let me help you. And, and, and frankly, as, I, as I've studied this passage, I've realized I didn't understand this as well as I did as well. I'm a professional Christian. I've studied theology, but I don't know the Bible as well as I should. I'm no match for the enemy either. But Paul's saying, listen, be clear on this. The sword of the spirit is not based upon your understanding of God's word. Because if it was you would always fail. And unfortunately, we've looked at it that way and we have always failed. I love what 2 Timothy 3, uh, what Paul says to Timothy. We have a form of godliness, but we deny its power. See, the Bible is, is key to your faith. It is the very words of God. It is the revelation of the character and the nature of who and what God is. However, if all you look at this as, as, a, way, as a rule book, as, as a set of uh, wise sayings, like a, like a Christian fortune cookie, crack it open and there's like a new thing there. And then, you, you know, it's like, if that's how you look at this, at this book here, this Bible, then you will never truly understand it. And you will never understand how to wield it in a way that will, that, that will be a defense and an attack against the enemy. Your knowledge of God's word is not dependent upon your relationship with God. Remember the early disciples there, the book of Acts there, they had some understanding of the Torah, the Old Testament, but they're being led into areas that they had never had understanding about. And that was life in the spirit. So Paul uses this for a reason. The sword of the spirit is fueled by a living relationship. Why Paul uses the word as rhema? Because Paul says, have a conversation with God. If you're not having these conversations, and when I say conversations, many of you are like, am I supposed to talk to the ceiling? Because that's what prayer feels like. Dillard, uh, hopefully you're up there, but uh, I don't know if you are, right? Is that, is that the conversations we're talking about? No. It's not, just, it's not just that one layer. Prayer is a conversation. It's mostly a one-sided conversation. But when we live life in the Spirit, it's a dialogue. It's, 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 it's this moment of time where we realize that we, don't, we read God's word, we pray in community. We are, we, are, we are adding layer upon layer to this conversation that is our faith. And it's not just the one way. It is more than that. The word of God is not, the word of God is not a word singular, but a dialogue. A dialogue is something that someone who is actively engaged with God. 
The reason we can't wield the sword of the Spirit is because many of us are not even in active relationship with God. Coming to church Sunday morning is not active relationship with God. It is an aspect of community building and a key aspect of community building, but it is not the only one. Most of us depend on our Sunday morning gathering times, and that's it. And then we wonder why our, our spiritual lives are so empty, so boring. When people say to me, Christianity is boring, I'm like, you're living it wrong. Christianity is terrifying. It's absolutely heart-wrenchingly terrifying. And you don't realize how much fear exists in your heart until the enemy targets you. Remember, the closer you draw to God, the more important you become to the enemy. And Sunday morning attendance is just a blip. It's not even intentionally pressing into God and what he wants from you. So we have this idea of, of, of knowing that what we're trying to say here is, is the, sword, the, the, the word of God is the sword of spirit, which is, which is more than just simply memorizing scripture. Only a spirit-led Christian who is actively engaged with God can use the sword. This is why Bible reading is so boring to you. This is why your faith is so dry and dead, because it is not an active relationship with God. You are attacked by the enemy and you want to wield a sword, but the problem is it's the spirit and it is his and he has the abilities that you need to be able to wield it properly. But because you're disengaged from an active relationship with God, you can't wield this. You can't use this. It is a dead piece of equipment in your hand because there's no active living relationship with God. Remember, the spirit's second job is to bring scripture to life. First rule, the first understanding of the Spirit is he wants to make everybody a Christ follower. Conviction. He is out in the world right now, and he is calling all men and women to a relationship with God. But the second thing the Spirit wants to do is he wants to bring scriptures alive. Look what um, Paul says in 2 Corinthians. He has made us competent as ministers of a new covenant. Do you feel competent sometimes? I don't. I don't feel competent. I don't feel like I know or understand. This whole church plant thing has stretched me beyond what I ever even imagined. I don't feel competent. But then look what he says. Not of the letter, but of the spirit. For the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. You read the God's word. You're going, I don't get anything from this. As a matter of fact, I kind of avoid the Old Testament. Because God seems bloodthirsty. He seems angry all the time. It's all about wrath, 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 and killing, killing, killing. I'm going to avoid that. I'm able to touch on the Psalms, and then when I head over to, the, to Jesus, because he's cute and cuddly, and I get it, right? I get Jesus, right? But the problem is, is that's our understanding of God's word. If that's how we understand God's revelation to us, no wonder we get ourselves kicked around by the enemy. No wonder when someone comes to you like, oh, I just heard that someone said to me that, you know, Jesus and Mary were married. Did you know they found that? Oh, yeah. And matter of fact, there's, there's, there's books in the Bible that didn't put in there because it contradicted that. Oh, yeah, it's called the Gospel of Thomas, the Gospel of Mary Magdalene. Oh, yeah, don't you know your Bible's incomplete? You're reading it wrong? Those are reading it upside down. You laugh, but you hear it all the time. Someone said to me, oh, did you know the Bible is missing a, a gospel? I'm like, really? Which one? The gospel of Thomas. I'm like, oh, you mean the gospel that was written 300 years after Jesus' life? Huh? Oh, you mean the gospel that was found in the Nag Hammadi Library in 1971 in Egypt? That's called the Gnostic Gospel. It was written 300 years after life of Jesus. It wasn't written by any eyewitnesses. And it was written by people who were trying to dilute the, uh, the Christianity. Huh? 
And oh, the same gospel that talks about God not actually caring about how our faith is. And, and that, that gospel, that's what you're talking about we're missing? Oh, maybe not that one, but I'm sure there's another one. Yeah, I'm sure there is too. Why do we, why is our faith kicked around just because somebody's got an argument? Dig a little deeper and you're like, okay, wait a minute. This stuff is not as, as complex. And you're like, oh, I didn't know that. This is your faith, people. Do your homework. I have homework now in faith. Yeah, you do. And uh, it's important. Okay, let me, let me get, let me, let me kind of keep going here. The Holy Spirit. John chapter 14. What does Jesus say? But the advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I have said to you. What does the Spirit want to do? He wants to take God's word, the Bible, the logos, and he wants to make it rhema. He wants to have a conversation with you. And the reason why Jesus says it's good that I'm going is the Spirit's going to do what I could never do. And that's going to bring scriptures alive for you. Alive for you in your head and your heart. Alive for you in the moments of stress, of pain, of suffering, of failure, of doubt. That's what the Holy Spirit wants to do. Remember Romans 7? I love Romans 7 because it makes Paul human to me. Romans 7 is Paul's schizophrenic moment, right? Uh, so, I, I, so I find this law at work. Although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being I delight in God's law, but I see another law work in me, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law. Law, uh, logos, word, right? Uh, of the sin that work within me. What a wretched man am I? Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? You read that. You know that, right? And you go, yes, Paul is struggling with his sin. He's struggling with the law. The law has told him that everything he does is wrong. Like, what do you do? Did you know that the answer he finds in Romans chapter 8, verse 1, is all about the Spirit? Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled met in us who do not live according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. Romans 7 is Paul's Midnight of the soul. Why can I do what I don't want to do? Why do I do what I don't want to do? I want to, I want to be a godly man. I want to do all this, but I can't because the law is there and my flesh is weak. And Paul struggles. Romans 7, struggles, struggles, struggles. The revelation comes when Paul's reminded the Spirit is what gives life. The Spirit takes God's Word and applies it to our lives. We teach here at, at UCC that we want to be Spirit-led Christians. Not just Christians who have encountered Jesus, but Christians who are actively engaged with the Holy Spirit, who wants to reveal Jesus and transform us into Christ's image. Let me close. One last, two more scriptures apparently. Uh, in John chapter 6, verse 63, the Spirit gives life, the flesh counts for nothing. The words, Rhema, I have spoken to you, they are full of the Spirit and of life. When is the last time the Spirit... The words of spirit have been spoken to your life. What we have received is not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, so that we may understand that what God has freely given us. This is what we speak, not in words taught us by human wisdom, but in the words taught by the spirit, explaining spiritual realities with spirit-taught words. 
I don't know, I can't, I'm not even sure Paul could use the word spirit in that sentence even more than he already has. The person without the spirit does not accept the things that come from the spirit of God, but consider them foolishness and cannot understand them because they are discerned only through the spirit. The person with the spirit makes judgment about all things, but such a person is not subject merely to human judgments. You think to yourself, I want to share my faith. I want to tell people how much I love Jesus, but I don't know the Bible enough. I don't know the, I don't know the arguments enough. But the Spirit says to you, I will give you the words. Fear has kept you from sharing your faith. Fear has kept you from telling people your testimony. Why? You live in this, this idea of like, I don't know enough. I don't, I'm not good enough. And the Spirit trying to say to you, listen, speak with Spirit-drenched words. Speak in a way that is beyond, uh, beyond your comprehension. Let's bow our heads and pray. As your heads are bowed and your eyes are closed, I want you to have a moment of meditation. I'm going to ask the ushers to go to grab the elements for communion. And the kids are going to come back in as well too. Heads are bowed, eyes are closed. You know why I do this. I do this to give you an opportunity to meditate, to think. Meditation is not an Eastern philosophy. It is instead thinking about what God has done for us. Your, your faith seems dry, it seems dead, it seems boring. <clears throat> My response is just add spirit. You struggle with doubts, you struggle with words to say to your coworkers, your friends, your people you go to school with. Just add spirit. You feel dead in your faith, you feel dead in what you were meant to do. Church is boring, God is boring, I know it all already. Just add spirit. Kids, come on down. Don't even worry about it. We love it when you guys make noise. My prayer for each of you this morning is that the sword of the spirit, you would understand the context of it. The context of the sword of the spirit is not about you knowing how to use God's word to pummel somebody into knowledge of Jesus. But instead, God's word is by his spirit given to you to help you to understand application to your own life and to others. And maybe your prayer this morning needs to be, Holy Spirit, make God's word alive to me once again. That is his function. That's what he wants to do. He wants to take the dry thing you call the Bible. He wants to dredge it in his spirit and apply it to your lives. And when you're out in the workplace, out in the school, and you are having conversations and you don't know what to say, the spirit's going to speak to you. He's going to tell you what you need to say. And you're like, where did that come from? You're going to high five the Spirit. He wants that for your life. He wants to make God's word alive to you once again. Some of you just need to ask for forgiveness, for allowing fear and doubt. To think you're not good enough, smart enough, knowledgeable enough. The Holy Spirit's here this morning and he's saying to you, on your own, you are ill-equipped, but with me, greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world. Dear Lord Jesus, I thank you that you have not abandoned us, you have not left us as orphans on this planet, but instead you gave us your Holy Spirit. Lord, 
the Spirit of God, which is the Word of God, is rhema, a dialogue with God. It's reading your word, it's understanding it, it's digging deeper, it's asking questions, it's being honest about our doubts, but also opening ourselves up to the Holy Spirit to reveal, to speak. And I pray, God, this morning that there are those here in this room would begin to have a fresh revelation of who you are. God, forgive us when we hold back because we think we don't know. I pray, God, you would help us to trust you, to walk in your ways which are exciting and terrifying. But Lord, I pray in Jesus' name, by the power of your Holy Spirit, you would make the word of God alive to us once again. That Lord, that each one of us would look at the rhema, having a conversation with God. In Jesus' name, amen.